all is revealed. And we finally learn the answer to Robert's burning question. Who exactly is Antony Ferrara? Sax Romer, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you to all of our financial supporters. We couldn't do this without you, and we really appreciate your support. We've set it up so that for a $5 monthly donation, you get a monthly coupon code for $8 off any audiobook order. Give more, and you get more. It's a great way to easily build out your classic audiobook library. And you help to give more folks like you the chance to discover the classics in a curated and easily accessible format. Go to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com today and become a financial supporter. You'll be glad you did. Thank you so much. And if you can't support us financially right now, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts so more folks can find us. Well, the day I knew would finally come has finally come. We have come to the end of this book. Now, I told you when we began that it's been criticized because it has a weak ending. Well, it does. It's not a good ending. It's quite likely, when you are in a conversation about books that are great but have really weak endings, this will be the top one that comes to mind. Maybe not, but maybe so. This book has been so fun, though. I mean, we've had murderous invisible hands, a room carpeted with spiders, headless bats and a curse with the hair and the orchids? We, we've crawled through an Egyptian pyramid and discovered Ferrara creating the nefarious incense. I mean, it's been a fun ride. Let's just try to remember that as we finish this up. Just want to manage your expectations here. And now, The Night of the Necropolis, Part 8 of 8, by Sax Romer. Chapter 28 The High Priest, or Totef The breakfast room of Dr. Cairn's house in Half Moon Street presented a cheery appearance, and this despite the gloom of the morning. For thunderous clouds hung low in the sky, and there were distant mutterings ominous of a brooming storm. Robert Cairn stood looking out of the window. He was thinking of an afternoon at Oxford, when, to such an accompaniment as this, he had witnessed the first scene in the drama of evil, wherein the man called Antony Ferrara sustained the leading role. That the denouement was at any moment to be anticipated, his reason told him. And some instinct that was not of his reason forewarned him, too, that he and his father, Dr. Cairn, were now upon the eve of that final, decisive struggle, which should determine the triumph of good over evil, or of evil over good. Already the doctor's house was invested by the uncanny forces marshaled by Antony Ferrara against them. The distinguished patients, who daily flocked to the consulting room of the celebrated specialist, who witnessed his perfect self-possession and took comfort from his confidence, knowing it for the confidence of strength, little suspected that a greater ill than any flesh's heir to assailed the doctor to whom they came for healing. A menace, dreadful and unnatural, hung over that home as now the thunderclouds hung over it. This well-ordered household, so modern, so typical of twentieth-century culture and refinement, presented none of the appearances of a beleaguered garrison. Yet the house of Dr. Cairn in Half Moon Street was nothing less than an invested fortress. A peal of distant thunder boomed from the direction of Hyde Park. Robert Cairn looked up at the lowering sky, as if seeking a portent. To his eyes it seemed that a livid face, malignant with the malignancy of a devil, looked down out of the clouds. 
Myra Duquesne came into the breakfast room. He turned to greet her, and in his capacity of accepted lover, was about to kiss the tempting lips when he hesitated and contented himself with kissing her hand. A sudden sense of the proprieties had assailed him. He reflected that the presence of the girl beneath the same roof as himself, although dictated by imperative need, might be open to misconstruction by the prudish. Dr. Cairn had decided that, for the present, Myra Duquesne must dwell beneath his own roof, as, in feudal days, the baron, at first hint of an approaching enemy, formerly was accustomed to call within the walls of the castle those whom it was his duty to protect. Unknown to the world, a tremendous battle raged in London. The outer works were in the possession of the enemy, and he was now before their very gates. Myra, though still pale from her recent illness, already was recovering some of the freshness of her beauty. And in her simple morning dress, as she busied herself about the breakfast table, she was a sweet picture enough, and good to look upon. Robert Cairn stood beside her, looking into her eyes, and she smiled up at him with a happy contentment, which filled him with a new longing. But, did you dream again last night? he asked, in a voice which he strove to make matter-of-fact. Myra nodded, and her face momentarily clouded over. The same dream? Yes, she said in a troubled way. At least, in some respects. Dr. Cairn came in, glancing at his watch. Good morning, he cried cheerily. I have actually overslept myself. They took their seats at the table. Myra has been dreaming again, sir, said Robert Cairn slowly. The doctor, serviette in hand, glanced up with an inquiry in his grey eyes. We must not overlook any possible weapon, he replied. Give us particulars of your dream, Myra. As Marston entered silently with the morning fare, and having placed the dishes upon the table as silently withdrew, Myra began. I seemed to stand again in the barn-like building which I have described to you before. Through the rafters of the roof, I could see the cracks in the tiling, and the moonlight shone through, forming light and irregular patches upon the floor. A sort of door, like that of a stable, with a heavy bar across, was dimly perceptible at the further end of the place. The only furniture was a large deal table, and a wooden chair of a very common kind. Upon the table stood a lamp. What kind of lamp? jerked Dr. Cairn. A silver lamp. She hesitated, looking from Robert to his father. One that I have seen in Antony's rooms. Its shaded light shone upon a closed iron box. I immediately recognized this box. You know, that I described to you in a dream which terrified me on a previous night? Dr. Cairn nodded, frowning darkly. Repeat your account of the former dream, he said. I regard it as important. In my former dream, the girl resumed, and her voice had an odd, far-away quality. The scene was the same, except that the light of the lamp was shining down upon the leaves of an open book, a very, very old book, written in strange characters. These characters appeared to dance before my eyes, almost as though they lived. She shuddered slightly. Then, the same iron box, but open, stood upon the table, and a number of other, smaller boxes around it. Each of these boxes was of a different material. Some were wooden. One, I think, was of ivory. One was of silver, and one of some dull metal, which might have been gold. In the chair by the table, Antony was sitting. His eyes were fixed upon me with such a strange expression that I awoke, trembling frightfully. Dr. Cairn nodded again. 
And last night? He prompted. Last night, continued Myra, with a note of trouble in her sweet voice. At four points around this table stood four smaller lamps, and upon the floor were rows of characters apparently traced in luminous paint. They flickered up and then grew dim, then flickered up again in a sort of phosphorescent way. They extended from lamp to lamp, so as entirely to surround the table and the chair. In the chair, Antony Ferrara was sitting. He held a wand in his right hand, a wand with several copper rings about it. His left hand rested upon the iron box. In my dream, although I could see this all very clearly, I seemed to see it from a distance, yet at the same time I stood apparently close by the tables. I cannot explain, but I could hear nothing. Only by the movements of his lips could I tell that he was speaking or chanting. She looked across at Dr. Cairn, as if fearful to proceed, but presently continued. Suddenly, I saw a frightful shape appear on the far side of the circle. That is to say, the table was between me and this shape. It was just like a grey cloud, having the vague outlines of a man, but with two eyes of red fire glaring out from it. Horribly, oh, horribly, and extended its shadowy arms as if saluting Antony. He turned and seemed to question it. Then with a look of ferocious anger, oh, it was frightful, he dismissed the shape and began to walk up and down beside the table, but never beyond the lighted circle, shaking his fists in the air and, to judge by the movements of his lips, uttering most awful imprecations. He looked gaunt and ill. I dreamt no more, but awoke, conscious of a sensation as though some dead weight, which had been pressing upon me, had been suddenly removed. Dr. Cairn glanced across at his son significantly, but the subject was not renewed throughout breakfast. Breakfast concluded. Come into the library, Rob, said Dr. Cairn. I have half an hour to spare and there are some matters to be discussed. He led the way into the library, with its orderly rows of obscure works, its store of forgotten wisdom, and pointed to the red leathern armchair. As Robert Cairn seated himself and looked across at his father, who sat at the big writing table, that scene reminded him of many dangers met and overcome in the past. For the library at Half Moon Street was associated in his mind with some of the blackest pages in the history of Antony Ferrara. Do you understand the position, Rob? asked the doctor abruptly. I think so, sir. This, I take it, is his last card, this outrageous, ungodly thing which he has loosed upon us. Dr. Cairn nodded grimly. The exact frontier, he said, dividing what we may term hypnotism from what we know as sorcery has yet to be determined, and to which territory the doctrine of elemental spirits belongs. It would be purposeless at the moment to discuss. We may note, however, remembering with whom we are dealing, that the 108th chapter of the ancient Egyptian Book of the Dead is entitled The Chapter of Knowing the Spirits of the West, forgetting, pro tem, that we dwell in the 20th century and looking at the situation from the point of view, say, of Eliphas Levy, Cornelius Agrippa, or the Abbe de Villars, the man whom we know as Antony Ferrara is directing against this house and those within it a type of elemental spirit known as a salamander. Robert Cairn smiled slightly. Ah, said the doctor, with an answering smile in which there was little mirth. We are accustomed to laugh at this medieval terminology. But by what other can we speak of the activities of Ferrara? Sometimes I think that we are the victims of a common madness, said his son, raising his hand to his head in a manner almost pathetic. We are the victims of a common enemy, 
replied his father sternly. He employs weapons which, often enough, in this enlightened age of ours, have condemned poor souls, as sane as you or I, to the madhouse. Why in God's name? he cried with a sudden excitement. Does science persistently ignore all those laws which cannot be examined in the laboratory? Will the day never come when some true man of science shall endeavour to explain the movements of a table upon which a ring of hands has been placed? Will no exact scientist condescend to examine the properties of a planchette? Will no one do for the phenomena termed thought-forms what Newton did for that of the falling apple? Ah, Rob, in some respects this is a darker age than those which bear the stigma of darkness. Silence fell for a few moments between them. Then, One thing is certain, said Robert Cairn, deliberately. We are in danger. In the greatest danger. Antony Ferrara, realizing that we are bent upon his destruction, is making a final, stupendous effort to compass ours. I know that you have placed certain seals upon the windows of this house, and that after dusk these windows are never opened. I know that imprints, strangely like the imprints of fiery hands, may be seen at this moment upon the casements of Myra's room, your room, my room, and elsewhere. I know that Myra's dreams are not ordinary, meaningless dreams. I have had other evidence. I don't want to analyse these things. I confess that my mind is not capable of the task. I do not even want to know the meaning of it all. At the present moment, I only want to know one thing. Who is Antony Ferrara? Dr. Cairn stood up, and turning, faced his son. The time has come, he said, when that question, which you have asked me so many times before, shall be answered. I will tell you all I know, and leave you to form your own opinion. For ere we go any further, I assure you that I do not know for certain who he is. You have said so before, sir. Will you explain what you mean? When his adoptive father, Sir Michael Ferrara, resumed the doctor, beginning to pace up and down the library, when Sir Michael and I were in Egypt, in the winter of 1893, we conducted certain inquiries in the Fayum. We camped for over three months beside the Maidum Pyramid. The object of our inquiries was to discover the tomb of a certain queen. I will not trouble you with the details, which could be of no interest to anyone but an Egyptologist. I will merely say that apart from the name and titles by which she is known to the ordinary student, this queen is also known to certain inquirers as the Witch Queen. She was not an Egyptian, but an Asiatic. In short, she was the last high priestess of a cult which became extinct at her death. Her secret mark, I am not referring to a cartouche or anything of that kind, was a spider. It was the mark of the religion or cult which she practised. The high priest of the principal temple of Ra, during the reign of the pharaoh, who was this queen's husband, was one Hortotef. This was his official position, but secretly he was also the high priest of the sinister creed to which I have referred. The temple of this religion, a religion allied to black magic, was the Pyramid of Maidum. So much we knew, or Ferrara knew, and imparted to me. But for any corroborative evidence of this cult's existence we searched in vain. We explored the interior of the pyramid foot by foot, inch by inch, and found nothing. We knew that there was some other apartment in the pyramid, but in spite of our soundings, measurements, and laborious excavations, we did not come upon the entrance to it. The tomb of the queen we failed to discover also, and therefore concluded that her mummy was buried in the secret chamber of the pyramid. We had abandoned our quest in despair, when, excavating in one of the neighbouring mounds, we made a discovery. 
He opened a box of cigars, selected one, and pushed the box towards his son. Robert shook his head, almost impatiently. But Dr. Cairn lighted the cigar, ere resuming. Directed, as I now believe, by a malignant will, we blundered upon the tomb of the high priest. You found his mummy? We found his mummy, yes. But owing to the carelessness and the fear of the native labourers, it was exposed to the sun and crumpled, was lost. I would a similar fate had attended the other one which we found. What? Another mummy? We discovered. Dr. Cairns spoke very deliberately. A certain papyrus. The translation of this is contained. He rested the point of his finger upon the writing table. In the unpublished book of Sir Michael Ferrara, which lies here. That book, Rob, will never be published now. Furthermore, we discovered the mummy of a child. A child? A boy. Not daring to trust the natives, we removed it secretly at night to our own tent. Before we commenced the task of unwrapping it, Sir Michael, the most brilliant scholar of his age, had proceeded so far in deciphering the papyrus that he determined to complete his reading before we proceeded further. It contained directions for performing a certain process. This process had reference to the mummy of the child. Do I understand? Already you are discrediting the story. Ah, I can see it. But let me finish. Unaided, we performed this process upon the embalmed body of the child. Then, in accordance with the directions of that dead magician, that accursed malignant being, who thus had sought to secure for himself a new tenure of evil life, we laid the mummy, treated in a certain fashion, in the king's chamber of the Maydoom Pyramid. It remained there for thirty days, from moon to moon. You guarded the entrance? You may assume what you like, Rob, but I could swear before any jury that no one entered the pyramid throughout that time. Yet since we were only human, we may have been deceived in this. I have only to add that when at the rising of the new moon in the ancient Sothic month of Panoi, we again entered the chamber, a living baby, some six months old, perfectly healthy, solemnly blinked up at the lights which we held in our trembling hands. Dr. Cairn reseated himself at the table and turned the chair so that he faced his son. With a smoldering cigar between his teeth, he sat, a slight smile upon his lips. Now it was Robert's turn to rise and begin feverishly to pace the floor. You mean, sir, that this infant, which lay in the pyramid, was adopted by Sir Michael? Was adopted, yes. Sir Michael engaged nurses for him reared him here in England, educating him as an Englishman, sent him to a public school, sent him to... To Oxford? Antony Ferrara? What? Do you seriously tell me that this is the history of Antony Ferrara? On my word of honour, boy, that is all I know of Antony Ferrara. Is it not enough? Merciful God, it is incredible, groaned Robert Cairn. From the time that he attained to manhood, said Dr. Cairn evenly, this adopted son of my poor old friend has passed from crime to crime, by means which are beyond my comprehension, and which alone serve to confirm his supernatural origin. He has acquired knowledge. According to the ancient Egyptian beliefs, the coup, or magical powers, of a fully equipped adept at the death of the body, could enter into anything prepared for its reception. According to these ancient beliefs, then, the coup of the high priest Hortotef entered into the body of this infant who was his son, and whose mother was the witch-queen. And today, in this modern London, a wizard of ancient Egypt, armed with the lost lore of that magical land, 
walks among us. What that lore is worth, it would be profitless for us to discuss. But that he possesses it, all of it, I know beyond doubt. The most ancient and most powerful magical book which has ever existed was the Book of Tote. He walked across to a distant shelf, selected a volume, opened it at a particular page, and placed it on his son's knees. Read there, he said, pointing. The words seemed to dance before the younger man's eyes, and this is what he read. To read two pages enables you to enchant the heavens, the earth, the abyss, the mountains, and the sea. You shall know what the birds of the sky and the crawling things are saying. And when the second page is read, if you are in the world of ghosts, you will grow again in the shape you were on earth. Heavens, whispered Robert Cairn. Is this the writing of a madman? Or can such things possibly be? He read on. This book is in the middle of the river at Koptos, in an iron box. An iron box, he muttered. An iron box. So you recognize the iron box, jerked Dr. Cairn. His son read on. In the iron box is a bronze box. In the bronze box is a sycamore box. In the sycamore box is an ivory and ebony box. In the ivory and ebony box is a silver box. In the silver box is a golden box. And in that is the book. It is twisted all round with snakes and scorpions and all the other crawling things. The man who holds the book of Tote, said Dr. Cairn, breaking the silence, holds a power which should only belong to God. The creature who is known to the world as Antony Ferrara holds that book. Do you doubt it? Therefore you know now, as I have known long enough, with what manner of enemy we are fighting. You know that this time it is a fight to the death. He stopped abruptly, staring out of the window. A man with a large photographic camera, standing upon the opposite pavement, was busily engaged in focusing the house. What is this? muttered Robert Cairn, also stepping to the window. It is a link between sorcery and science, replied the doctor. You remember Ferrara's photographic gallery at Oxford? The Zenana, you used to call it. You remember having seen in his collection photographs of persons who afterwards came to violent ends? I begin to understand. Thus far, his endeavours to concentrate the whole of the evil forces at his command upon this house have had but poor results, having merely caused Myra to dream strange dreams, clairvoyant dreams, instructive dreams, more useful to us than to the enemy, and having resulted in certain marks upon the outside of the house adjoining the windows, windows which I have sealed in a particular manner. You understand? By means of photographs he— concentrates in some way malignant forces upon certain points. He focuses his will, yes. The man who can really control his will, Rob, is supreme, below the Godhead. Ferrara can almost do this now. Before he has become wholly proficient, I understand, sir, snapped his son grimly. He is barely of age, boy, Dr. Cairn said, almost in a whisper. In another year, he would menace the world. Where are you going? He grasped his son's arm as Robert started for the door. That man yonder. Diplomacy, Rob. Guile against guile. Let the man do his work, which he does in all innocence. Then follow him. Learn where his studio is situated, and from that point proceed to learn the situation of Ferrara's hiding place, cried his son excitedly. I understand. Of course, you are right, sir. I will leave the inquiry in your hands, Rob. Unfortunately, other duties call me. Chapter 29 The Wizard's Den 
Robert Cairn entered a photographer's shop in Baker Street. You recently arranged to do views of some houses in the West End for a gentleman? He said to the girl in charge. That is so, she replied after a moment's hesitation. We did pictures of the house of some celebrated specialist. For a magazine article, they were intended. Do you wish us to do something similar? Not at the moment, replied Robert Cairn, smiling slightly. I merely want the address of your client. I do not know that I can give you that, replied the girl doubtfully. But he will be here about eleven o'clock for proofs if you wish to see him. I wonder if I can confide in you, said Robert Cairn looking the girl frankly in the eyes. She seemed rather confused. I hope there is nothing wrong, she murmured. You have nothing to fear, he replied. But unfortunately, there is something wrong, which, however, I cannot explain. Will you promise me not to tell your client, I do not ask his name, that I have been here, or have been making any inquiries respecting him? I think I can promise that, she replied. I am much indebted to you. Robert Cairn hastily left the shop and began to look about him for a likely hiding place from whence, unobserved, he might watch the photographers. An antique furniture dealer's, some little distance along on the opposite side, attracted his attention. He glanced at his watch. It was half past ten. If, upon the pretense of examining some of the stock, he could linger in the furniture shop for half an hour, he would be enabled to get upon the track of Ferrara. His mind made up, he walked along and entered the shop. For the next half an hour, he passed from item to item of the collection displayed there, surveying each in the leisurely manner of a connoisseur. But always he kept a watch, through the window, upon the photographer's establishment beyond. Promptly, at eleven o'clock, a taxicab drew up at the door, and from it a slim man alighted. He wore, despite the heat of the morning, an overcoat of some woolly material, and in his gait, as he crossed the pavement to enter the shop, there was something revoltingly effeminate, a sort of cat-like grace, which had been noticeable in a woman, but which in a man was unnatural and for some obscure reason, sinister. It was Antony Ferrara. Even at that distance and in that brief time, Robert Cairn could see the ivory face, the abnormal red lips, and the long black eyes of this arch-fiend, this monster masquerading as a man. He had much ado to restrain his rising passion but knowing that all depended upon his cool action, he waited until Ferrara had entered the photographer's. With a word of apology to the furniture dealer, he passed quickly into Baker Street. Everything rested now upon his securing a cab before Ferrara came out again. Ferrara's cabman, evidently, was waiting for him. A taxi driver fortunately hailed Cairn at the very moment that he gained the pavement and Cairn, concealing himself behind the vehicle, gave the man rapid instructions. You see that taxi outside the photographer's? he said. The man nodded. Wait until someone comes out of the shop and is driven off in it, then follow. Do not lose sight of the cab for a moment. When it draws up, and wherever it draws up, drive right past it. Don't attract attention by stopping. You understand? Quite, sir said the man, smiling slightly, and Cairn entered the cab. The cabman drew up at a point some little distance beyond, from whence he could watch. Two minutes later, Ferrara came out and was driven off. The pursuit commenced. His cab, ahead, proceeded to Westminster Bridge, across to the south side of the river, and by way of that commercial thoroughfare at the back of St. Thomas's Hospital, emerged at Vauxhall. Thence, the pursuit led to Stockwell, Hearn Hill, and yet onward towards Dulwich. It suddenly occurred to Robert Cairn that Ferrara was making in the direction of Mr. Saunderson's house at Dulwich Common, the house in which Myra had had her mysterious illness, in which she had remained 
until it had become evident that her safety depended upon her never being left alone for one moment. What can be his object? muttered Cairn. He wondered if Ferrara, for some inscrutable reason, was about to call upon Mr. Saunderson. But when the cab ahead, having passed the park, continued on past the lane in which the house was situated, he began to search for some other solution to the problem of Ferrara's destination. Suddenly, he saw that the cab ahead had stopped. The driver of his own cab, without slackening speed, pursued his way. Karen crouched down upon the floor, fearful of being observed. No house was visible to right nor left, merely open fields, and he knew that it would be impossible for him to delay in such a spot without attracting attention. Ferrara's cab passed. Keep on till I tell you to stop, cried Cairn. He dropped the speaking tube, and turning, looked out through the little window at the back. Ferrara had dismissed his cab. He saw him entering a gate and crossing a field on the right of the road. Cairn turned again and took up the tube. Stop at the first house we come to, he directed. Hurry! Presently a deserted-looking building was reached, a large, straggling house, which obviously had no tenant. Here the man pulled up and Cairn leapt out. As he did so, he heard Ferrara's cab driving back the way it had come. Here, he said, and gave the man half a sovereign. Wait for me. He started back along the road at a run. Even had he suspected that he was followed, Ferrara could not have seen him. But when Cairn came up level with the gate through which Ferrara had gone, he slowed down and crept cautiously forward. Ferrara, who by this time had reached the other side of the field, was in the act of entering a barn-like building, which evidently at some time had formed a portion of a farm. As the distant figure, opening one of the big doors, disappeared within, the place of which Myra has been dreaming, muttered Cairn. Certainly, viewed from that point, it seemed to answer, externally, to the girl's description. The roof was of moss-grown red tiles, and Cairn could imagine how the moonlight would readily find access through the chinks which beyond doubt existed in the weather-worn structure. He had little doubt that this was the place dreamt of, or seen clairvoyantly by Myra, that this was the place to which Ferrara had retreated in order to conduct his nefarious operations. It was eminently suited to the purpose, being entirely surrounded by unoccupied land. For what ostensible purpose Ferrara had leased it, he could not conjecture. Nor did he concern himself with the matter. The purpose for which actually he had leased the place was sufficiently evident to the man who had suffered so much at the hands of this modern sorcerer. To approach closer would have been indiscreet, this he knew, and he was sufficiently diplomatic to resist the temptation to obtain a nearer view of the place. He knew that everything depended upon secrecy. Antony Ferrara must not suspect that his black laboratory was known. Karen decided to return to Half Moon Street without delay, fully satisfied with the result of his investigation. He walked rapidly back to where the cab waited, gave the man his father's address, and in three quarters of an hour was back in Half Moon Street. Dr. Cairn had not yet dismissed the last of his patients. Myra, accompanied by Miss Saunderson, was out shopping, and Robert found himself compelled to possess his soul in patience. He paced restlessly up and down the library, sometimes taking a book at random, scanning its pages with unseeing eyes, and replacing it without having formed the slightest impression of its contents. He tried to smoke, but his pipe was constantly going out, and he had littered the hearth untidily with burnt matches, when Dr. Cairn suddenly opened the library door and entered. Well, he said eagerly. Robert Cairn leapt forward. I have tracked him, sir, he cried. My God, while Myra was at Saunderson's, she was almost next door to the beast. His den is in a field no more than a thousand yards from the garden wall, from Saunderson's orchid houses. He is daring muttered Dr. Cairn. 
but his selection of that site served two purposes. The spot was suitable in many ways, and we were least likely to look for him next door, as it were. It was a move characteristic of the accomplished criminal. Robert Cairn nodded. It is the place of which Myra dreamt, sir. I have not the slightest doubt about that. What we have to find out is at what times of the day and night he goes there. I doubt, interrupted Dr. Cairn, if he often visits the place during the day. As you know, he has abandoned his rooms in Piccadilly, but I have no doubt, knowing his sybaritic habits, that he has some other palatial place in town. I have been making inquiries in several directions, especially in certain directions. He paused, raising his eyebrows significantly. Additions to the Zanana? inquired Robert. Dr. Cairn nodded his head grimly. Exactly, he replied. There is not a scrap of evidence upon which, legally, he could be convicted. But since his return from Egypt, Rob, he has added other victims to the list. The fiend, cried the younger man. The unnatural fiend! Unnatural is the word. He is literally unnatural. But many women find him irresistible. He is typical of the unholy brood to which he belongs. The evil beauty of the witch-queen sent many a soul to perdition. The evil beauty of her son has zealously carried on the work. What must we do? I doubt if we can do anything today. Obviously, the early morning is the most suitable time to visit his den at Dulwich Common. But the new photographs of the house! There will be another attempt upon us tonight! Yes, there will be another attempt upon us tonight, said the doctor wearily. This is the year 1914. Yet here in Half Moon Street, when dusk falls, we shall be submitted to an attack of a kind to which mankind probably has not been submitted for many ages. We shall be called upon to dabble in the despised magical art. We shall be called upon to place certain seals upon our doors and windows, to protect ourselves against an enemy who, like Eros, laughs at locks and bars. Is it possible for him to succeed? Quite possible, Rob in spite of all our precautions. I feel in my very bones that tonight he will put forth a supreme effort. A bell rang. I think, continued the doctor, that this is Myra. She must get all the sleep she can during the afternoon, for tonight I have determined that she and you and I must not think of sleep, but must remain together here in the library. We must not lose sight of one another, you understand? I am glad that you have proposed it, cried Robert Cairn eagerly. I too feel that we have come to a critical moment in the contest. Tonight, continued the doctor, I shall be prepared to take certain steps. My preparations will occupy me throughout the rest of today. Chapter 30 The Elemental at dusk that evening, Dr. Cairn, his son, and Myra Duquesne met together in the library. The girl looked rather pale. An odor of incense pervaded the house, coming from the doctor's study, wherein he had locked himself early in the evening, issuing instructions that he was not to be disturbed. The exact nature of the preparations which he had been making, Robert Cairn was unable to conjecture and some instinct warned him that his father would not welcome any inquiry upon the matter. He realized that Dr. Cairn proposed to fight Antony Ferrara with his own weapons. And now, when something in the very air of the house seemed to warn them of a tremendous attack impending, that the doctor, much against his will, was entering the arena in the character of a practical magician, a character new to him, and obviously, abhorrent. At half-past ten, the servants all retired in accordance with Dr. Cairn's orders. From where he stood by the tall mantelpiece, Robert Cairn could watch Myra Duquesne, a dainty picture in her simple evening gown, where she sat reading in a distant corner, 
her delicate beauty forming a strong contrast to the background of somber volumes. Dr. Cairns sat by the big table, smoking, and apparently listening. A strange device which he had adopted every evening for the past week, he had adopted again tonight. There were little white seals, bearing a curious figure, consisting in interlaced triangles, upon the insides of every window in the house, upon the doors, and even upon the fire grates. Robert Cairn, at another time, might have thought his father mad, childish, thus to play at wizardry. But he had had experiences which had taught him to recognize that upon such seemingly trivial matters great issues might turn. That in the strange land over the border there were stranger laws, laws which he could but dimly understand. There he acknowledged the superior wisdom of Dr. Cairn and did not question it. At eleven o'clock a comparative quiet had come upon Half Moon Street. The sound of the traffic had gradually subsided, until it seemed to him that the house stood not in the busy west end of London, but isolated, apart from its neighbors. It seemed to him an abode, marked out and separated from the other abodes of man, a house enveloped in an impalpable cloud, a cloud of evil, summoned up and directed by the wizard hand of Antony Ferrara, son of of the Witch Queen. Although Myra pretended to read, and Dr. Cairn, from his fixed expression, might have been supposed to be preoccupied, in point of fact they were all waiting, with nerves at highest tension, for the opening of the attack. In what form it would come, whether it would be vague moanings and tappings upon the windows, such as they had already experienced, or whether it would be a phantasmal storm a clap of phenomenal thunder, they could not conjecture. If the enemy would attack suddenly, or if his menace would grow threatening from afar off and then gradually penetrating into the heart of the garrison. It came then, suddenly and dramatically. Dropping her book, Myra uttered a piercing scream and with eyes glaring madly, fell forward on the carpet, unconscious. Robert Cairn leapt to his feet with clenched fists. His father stood up so rapidly as to overset his chair, which fell crashingly upon the floor. Together they turned and looked in the direction in which the girl had been looking. They fixed their eyes upon the drapery of the library window, which was drawn together. The whole window was luminous, as though a bright light shone outside, but luminous, as though that light were the light of some unholy fire. Involuntarily they both stepped back, and Robert Cairn clutched his father's arm convulsively. The curtains seemed to be rendered transparent, as if some powerful ray were directed upon them. The window appeared through them as a rectangular blue patch. Only two lamps were burning in the library, that in the corner by which Myra had been reading, and the green shaded lamp upon the table. The best end of the room by the window, then, was in shadow against which this unnatural light shone brilliantly. My God, whispered Robert Cairn, that's Half Moon Street, outside. There can be no light. He broke off, for now he perceived the thing which had occasioned the girl's scream of horror. In the middle of the rectangular patch of light, a grey shape, but partially opaque, moved. Shifting, luminous clouds about it, was taking form, growing momentarily more substantial. It had some remote semblance of a man, but its unique characteristic was its awful grayness. It had the grayness of a rain cloud, yet rather that of a column of smoke, and from the center of the dimly defined head, two eyes, balls of living fire, glared out into the room. Heat was beating into the library from the window. Physical heat, as though a furnace door had been opened, and the shape, ever growing more palpable, was moving forward towards them, approaching, the heat every instant growing greater. It was impossible to look at those two eyes of fire, 
it was almost impossible to move. Indeed, Robert Cairn was transfixed in such horror as, in all his dealings with the monstrous Ferrara, he had never known before. But his father, shaking off the dread which possessed him also, leapt at one bound to the library table. Robert Cairn vaguely perceived that a small group of objects, looking like balls of wax, lay there. Dr. Cairn had evidently been preparing them in the locked study. Now, he took them all up in his left hand and confronted the thing, which seemed to be growing into the room, for it did not advance in the ordinary sense of the word. One by one, he threw the white pellets into that vapory grayness. As they touched the curtain, they hissed, as if they had been thrown into a fire. They melted, and upon the transparency of the drapings, as upon a sheet of gauze, showed faint streaks, where, melting, they trickled down the tapestry. As he cast each pellet from his hand, Dr. Cairn took a step forward and cried out certain words in a loud voice, words which Robert Cairn knew he had never heard uttered before, words in a language which some instinct told him to be ancient Egyptian. Their effect was to force that dreadful shape gradually to disperse, as a cloud of smoke might disperse when the fire which occasions it is extinguished slowly. Seven pellets in all he threw towards the window, and the seventh struck the curtains, now once more visible in their proper form. The fire elemental had been vanquished. Robert Cairn clutched his hair in a sort of frenzy. He glared at the draped window, feeling that he was making a supreme effort to retain his sanity. Had it ever looked otherwise? Had the tapestry ever faded before him, becoming visible in a great light which had shone through it from behind? Had the thing, a thing unnameable, indescribable, stood there? He read his answer upon the tapestry. Whitening streaks showed, where the pellets, melting, had trickled down the curtain. Lift Myra on the settee. It was Dr. Cairn speaking, calmly, but in a strained voice. Robert Cairn, as if emerging from a mist, turned to the recumbent white form upon the carpet. Then, with a great cry, he leapt forward and raised the girl's head. Myra, he groaned. Myra, speak to me. Control yourself, boy, rapped Dr. Cairn sternly. She cannot speak until you have revived her. She has swooned nothing worse. And we have conquered. Chapter 31 The Book of Tote The mists of early morning still floated over the fields, when these two, set upon strange business, walked through the damp grass to the door of the barn, wherefrom radiated the deathly waves which, on the previous night, had reached them, or almost reached them, in the library of Half Moon Street. The big double doors were padlocked, but for this they had come provided. Ten minutes' work upon the padlock sufficed, and Dr. Cairn swung wide the doors. A suffocating smell, the smell of that incense with which they had too often come in contact, was wafted out to them. There was a dim light inside the place, and without hesitation, both entered. A deal table and chair constituted the sole furniture of the interior. A part of the floor was roughly boarded, and a brief examination of the boarding sufficed to discover the hiding place in which Antony Ferrara kept the utensils of his awful art. Dr. Cairn lifted out two heavy boards, and in a recess below lay a number of singular objects. There were four antique lamps of most peculiar design. There was a larger silver lamp, which both of them had seen before in various apartments occupied by Antony Ferrara. There were a number of other things which Robert Cairn could not have described, had he been called upon to do so, for the reason that he had seen nothing like them before, and had no idea of their nature or purpose. But, conspicuous amongst this curious horde, 
was a square iron box of workmanship dissimilar from any workmanship known to Robert Cairn. Its lid was covered with a sort of scrollwork, and he was about to reach down in order to lift it out when, Do not touch it! cried the doctor. For God's sake, do not touch it! Robert Cairn started back, as though he had seen a snake. Turning to his father, he saw that the latter was pulling on a pair of white gloves. As he fixed his eyes upon these in astonishment, he perceived that they were smeared all over with some white preparation. Stand aside, boy, said the doctor, and for once his voice shook slightly. Do not look again until I call to you. Turn your head aside. Silent with amazement, Robert Cairn obeyed. He heard his father lift out the iron box. He heard him open it, for he had already perceived that it was not locked. Then, quite distinctly, he heard him close it again and replace it in the cache. Do not turn, boy, came a hoarse whisper. He did not turn, but waited, his heart beating painfully for what should happen next. Stand aside from the door, came the order, and when I have gone out, do not look after me. I will call to you when it is finished. He obeyed without demur. His father passed him, and he heard him walking through the damp grass outside the door of the barn. There followed an intolerable interval. From some place, not very distant, he could hear Dr. Cairn moving, hear the chink of glass upon glass, as though he were pouring out something from a stoppered bottle. Then a faint acrid smell was wafted to his nostrils, perceptible even above the heavy odor of the incense from the barn. Relock the door, came the cry. Robert Cairn reclosed the door, snapped the padlock fast, and began to fumble with the skeleton keys with which they had come provided. He discovered that to reclose the padlock was quite as difficult as to open it. His hands were trembling too. He was all anxiety to see what had taken place behind him, so that when at last a sharp click told of the task accomplished, he turned in a flash and saw his father placing tufts of grass upon a charred patch, from which a faint haze of smoke still arose. He walked over and joined him. What have you done, sir? I have robbed him of his armor, replied the doctor grimly. His face was very pale. His eyes were very bright. I have destroyed the Book of Tod. Then he will be unable... He will still be able to summon his dreadful servant, Rob. Having summoned him once, he can summon him again, but, well, sir, he cannot control him. Good God! That night brought no repetition of the uncanny attack, and in the grey half-light before the dawn, Dr. Cairn and his son, themselves like two phantoms, again crept across the field to the barn. The padlock hung loose in the ring. Stay where you are, Rob, cautioned the doctor. He gently pushed the door open, wider, wider, and looked in. There was an overpowering odor of burning flesh. He turned to Robert and spoke in a steady voice. The brood of the witch queen is extinct, he said. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of The Night of the Necropolis, Part 8 of 8 by Sax Romer. If you have enjoyed this book, please visit our website at classictalesaudiobooks.com and become a financial supporter. For $5 a month, you get a monthly coupon code for $8 off any audiobook order. Thank you for your support. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week, and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper.
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.